how you execute on your business is just as important as how you think about your business. In fact, thinking about it and how you have a philosophy, a mindset around it might be even more important. So our guest today talks about that very thing. How do you think about the business that you're in? So today, sit back, take a listen on the philosophy, the psychology behind business. All today on the podcast. Welcome to the Founders Place Podcast, the place where exceptional founders grow. Now here's your host, Todd Wills. Todd Wills. Hello, welcome to the podcast. Very excited to have Jerome on. I've known Jerome for a number of years. He's the CMO of Rambus. He's also the GM and principal. He's helping the company move in new and unique directions. And he thinks about things not just as a CMO, but as a business leader. He also has a psychology degree and has a understanding of philosophy of how to think about running his business, not just the tactics behind it. Jerome always has a great point of view, and he's going to talk to us today about scarcity and abundance, but I won't give it away because he says it better than anybody. One of the best interviews I've done so far, and that is saying a lot. We've had some heavy hitters on the show, but Jerome is an absolute treat. So sit back, listen as Jerome talks us through how to think about business. Jerome, as is our way, tell us who are you and why the heck are you here? Wow. What a non-intro intro. <laughs> exactly. Minimalist at its best. <laughs> so I am Jerome Nadell. Um, it's definitely my pleasure to be here with you. I'm feeling healthy as I am. I'm currently the chief marketing officer at Rambus, which is a semiconductor IP company. More on that as we go through. But I've also recently taken a post as the general manager of a division that we acquired, a European-based division we acquired back in 2016, which, in fact, I've just led the divestiture of. Um, life is more than work. We're going to talk a little bit about athletics and philosophy and you know, perspectives on our place in the universe. Um, so let's have at it. Perfect. Okay. So I think one of the things that's a, that's a hallmark of you and people that work with you, people that have been led by you, teams that have interacted with you, quickly realize that you're not a traditional business as usual guy, that you tend to bring in psychology and philosophy and broader ideas, mindsets into how you lead people, how you build teams, how you set direction and how you set people on a path of personal growth. You know, I, I can't tell you the number of people that I've talked to that have worked with you that have said, you know, Jerome takes a personal interest in me and has a unique way of building and growing my individual skill set. So one of the things that you've talked about in particular over the, the last few interactions is really this idea of abundance and scarcity. And I want you to sort of start there and your ideas around it. And then let's build on how this applies to, uh, business philosophy, you personally, how you work with your teams. This has just so many tentacles and goes in so many different directions. So I want to ha just have you start and give sort of the baseline definition so that we can build off of that. Yeah, let's, let's begin there. And I have, you know, I've got two kids. I've got a 30-year-old daughter um, who's now pregnant and I'm so excited to be a grandfather and a 24-year-old son. And, uh, Growing up, we talked about dadisms, and you know, I have simple statements that I would share with them that just sort of reinforce and codify my own belief. You know, like give more than you take, don't compare, and lead with love. And maybe we'll come back to that later because that's come back to haunt me, and I'll explain in a comical way why. The, the notion of this continuum between scarcity and abundance is, I think, really you know, so basic, but also so meaningful. Um, and clearly, you know, definitionally, scarcity means there's not enough and I should hold on to what I have um, and not give to others. It's a zero-sum game sort of mo model of I win, you lose, where abundance is the other end of the continuum and it speaks to, you know, unending um, availability. And I think it's a mindset. You know, there's a, there's a physicality to that, but it's a mindset where you can have nothing and live in abundance. And you could have everything and live in scarcity. Hmm. And, you know, I see that in the context of public companies when they feel they're not making their quarter, they quickly slide down the continuum to a mindset of scarcity where everything they look at, you know, comes back to how do we save as opposed to how do we grow? And, you know, if you come back to sort of that lean startup mindset, 
and take that leap of faith, you know, it is more to that end of, of, of abundance. And, you know, we'll talk in a bit. You mentioned athletics and racing. Um, I'm an avid cyclist. And I think that even this notion of a belief in abundance as opposed to scarcity, let me save to win as opposed to let me give to win, um, really is a differentiator between how people can be successful. So I fall back to this simple continuum, scarcity at one end, abundance. I don't think we're anchored on any given point. Um, we slide back and forth. But if we remind ourselves that we're falling back to scarcity, you know, it's often um, the agent that pushes us to the other side and how we would likely be more effective in our thinking. Well, you know, it's interesting with, with that in particular. And, and what I like about this is it's not, it's not one of those um, posters you'd put on the wall right next to the cat hanging from a tree that says, hang in there, right? It's, this is really a mindset of how to think about uh, interacting with the world around you, what your own belief systems are at any given point in time, and also hopefully identifying the people around you and understanding what their mindset is so that you have sympathy and empathy for their point of view and you know how to interact and engage with them. I couldn't. You Go on. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Keep, no, please. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, I think that, that real leaders, you know, demonstrate their vulnerability and are empathic. And, and just looking at this frame of we all have times of scarcity, you know, where we're afraid, we're fearful, we hold on. And the behaviors, you know, that emanate out of that mindset uh, are, are done in that way. You know, I'm holding on, I'm afraid to give. It's me versus you. And as leaders, how we inject, you know, an affect into a culture, um, we can promote that notion of abundance that we can, and one can't be naive. That's not the, the notion of this continuum, but just, you know, acknowledging that if we are more willing to give societally, sort of back to the dadisms, you know, <laughs> um, it shifts everything and we become an agent of change. And, you know, if you look at a geopolitical, um, you know, sinusoidal uh, dynamic right now, I mean, let's not get into, you know, American politics, but you know, if you look at our current administration and, and asked, where are we planted on this continuum of scarcity to abundance? You know, the rhetoric is predicated on scarcity, that it's got to be us versus them. It's nationalistic. You know, they're bad, we're good. And, and we see where this goes. And if you look globally, you know, my mom's French. I have a French passport as well as a U.S. Um, you're seeing these dynamics occur, you know, even in the Netherlands, um, which, you know, you have heritage from. You see it in Austria. You see it in France. You see it in Germany. Um, you're, you're seeing it around the globe. And it's just interesting if we stepped back philosophically and say, why is that? Why are there times when the world operates in a mindset of abundance and other times when it operates on scarcity? You know, and there's a truth, but there's a perception of that as well. And if we could just, you know, begin each day with an orientation of abundance, we become change agents for the world around us. I completely believe that. And I don't think it's a naive belief because I think it's gotten me to where I am humbly in, in my career in life. Well, and I, and I think the way that you've always approached it and, you know, I've heard you speak in the boardroom and over a cup of coffee, but your approach has always been um, how do we approach things so that we, we all can win and what does this look like? And, and I think one of the things that's been a dynamic, especially as I've started spending more time within the startup community, working with entrepreneurs, founders, earlier stage companies and then watch them grow into some of the, you know, largest brands on the, on the planet, you hear this sort of time and again, where early stage, everyone has an abundancy mindset. It's all about growth. It's all about opportunity. It's pie in the sky. Um, what are we going to do? And there's a cornucopia around us that we can go in and just pick from. And then as the company grows and matures, they start to bring in people that have more of a scarcity mindset to, control the business, to manage costs, to tighten down things. And then over time, that dynamic tends to shift. And, and I'm speaking in broad you know, strokes here, but the dynamic tends to shift 
And then those abundancy people are walking around saying, wait a minute, this used to be a go and grow place. This used to be a place that we could go and experiment and try. And, and there was an optimism here. And now there's almost a pessimism and there's a risk aversion. And it's all about mitigating that. And it's not about growth anymore. It's about holding on and controlling. And they're surprised by the dynamic. But if you, if you see this happen continuously, you see this sort of same pattern develop time and time again. And then companies wonder why when they become a large enterprise company, they're not able to have that, well, why can't we grow like we used to? Why can't we have explosive growth like we used to? Why is it so hard for us to go launch a new country? Why is it hard for us to go and launch a new market? It's because they've, they've changed the fundamental mindset. And while people can change internally, and it is a spectrum, um, people tend to anchor in certain areas and you've changed the culture of the company. Hmm. Yeah, you know, that's a perceptive but very broad and complicated statement. Let me try to break <laughs> it down because, you know, the word growth bothers me um, because growth can be really good or, or not so good. It, it's really the motivation behind that growth. I speak in the language of the fallacy of growth. Okay. And, you know, I, I've worked with different CEOs and, and one in particular, I'm not going to name names, was a growth maniac. And everything was about, you know, the external metric of growth, be it share price, be it revenue, CAGR, whatever metric yeah. you want to apply. And that growth to me isn't abundance-based, it's scarcity-based because it's an external metric on, yeah. you know, the, the fact that we don't have so we need to prove. And, you know, culturally, having had a couple of chances to live and immerse myself in France, I'm intrigued by the, the, the duality of growth versus sustainability. And, you know, you look at, you go to a, a, a restaurant in France, and it's the grandson of the father who was the son of the founder, you know, <laughs> and they're serving 51 plates a night, and they're not going to rush you to get table turnover. Um, they're going to serve the same 51 plates that the father served and the father's father served. And they maintain that where... This is a noble occupation, you know, where I deliver to my constituency something that is of value and it has, it has legs, it's sustainable. And I don't need some external metric of I'm growing to, you know, again, almost yeah. out of a scarcity mindset that I need to prove myself. And I think, you know, the challenge and you see the dynamic, I know we digress here, of, of public companies going private, you know, is to get out of that rat race of not being able to invest to grow, not being able to lead, you know, on a purpose mission, mm -hmm. um, but having to demonstrate, you know, earnings per share within quarter. Now, you know, I'm not naive entrepreneurially, and I understand that, you know, companies, especially public companies, need to generate profit and provide dividends to their shareholders. But when we think in this way of what are my short wins, what are the external metrics, and, yeah. and we're not back. And I think, you know, but to your good point, the startups begin with abundance because they have a purpose and a mission, and they're looking of how to get there. And they could be naive with borrowed money and not understanding, you know, what it means to be funded <laughs> and that they've got to deliver a return, but maintaining the orientation of we are in business to do this. And the, the money that you deliver back, you know, is a trailing indicator. Focus on the mission of what you're doing and the economics of that work themselves out. And I hope that doesn't sound, you know, naive because I don't mean it in that way. But uh, again, we fall up and down this continuum based on, you know, the reality of evidence in the real world. But it's incumbent, I think, on leaders, even in these tough times, not to be so retractive, not to lead in that scarcity mindset, um, but to, to maintain, you know, an opportunistic, inclusive, you know, abundance orientation. I think it applies so much to, to you know, what makes great companies stay great. And, and as they go to the transition from, you know, startup to late stage to institutional, they still maintain, you know, that esprit, um, I believe. Well, and I'll, I'll say just sitting from here, that doesn't sound naive at all. It sounds holistic, rational, and, and well thought out and, and very balanced and based off of a very strong platform of belief. You know, the, the point of view that you had, which I thought was so sage, was this idea that even if you have a quote unquote growth mindset, 
by the external factors where you're standing up in front of your teams and saying, we've got to go, 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 grow, grow, grow. Well, that may not be an abundance mindset. That may be a scarcity mindset. That may be based off of fear and mitigating risk. That may be based off of, here's the metrics that I need to have to make myself, the company, the team feel better in front of the board, or a belief that if we don't hit these markers, this is all going to go away, that the the myth will come crumbling around us. And so that sort of fear-based decision-making and that scarcity decision-making can be really dangerous, even when it's wrapped in the guise of this is growth. This is us moving forward and building and being stronger, being bigger. And your dynamic around sustainability and what does that really look like? And then even getting to the core of, you know, what is it that we're doing to delight and engage the customer? Where does the customer fit into this model? Are we growing for the sake of growth or do we, are we doing it because we have amazing customers and we have more customers that want to enjoy and engage in our products and services? And where's that play into the motivation here? Wow. You are one artic- articulate um, <laughs> mofo there, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> well done. You know, let, I'm let's get that on a t-shirt. I'm sorry. <laughs> Articulate mofo. Yeah, sure. You know, you talked a little bit about um, a background in psychology and, you know, the, the way I've sort of meandered over to marketing and actually see the two as being one and the same. And, and let me sort of um, take a trip down memory lane and, and share another observation that I think is related to what you just said and we're discussing. And that's, you know, uh, just turned 57 last week, old guy, still feel, you know, young and relevant. But, you know, was in graduate school um, working on a a PhD in applied experimental psychology in the 80s. And it's interesting when I came out, you know, the view of what one did with that degree was called human factors. In fact, the program that I was in didn't even really have, it was in the psychology group, but it was connected to engineering. You know, human factors is very multidisciplinary. And, and the first views of that were, you know, how does man, and I say that, you know, uh, tongue in cheek, um, you know, interface with machine. And it was really a performance orientation. How do I design things so people can be performant? And the language, you know, because I think, um, psycholinguistics is, is super interesting. You know, we think how we talk, we talk how we think. And the language back then was human factors. And then it transitioned to usability. And, and consultancies that were applying user-centered design methods were helping mitigate risk. They were helping design systems that people could use, that you could demonstrate productivity, that even at the beginning of, you know, the internet and online, that they could convert. And then magically, and you could almost go by decade, and I could go 80s, 90s, and again, it was human factors to usability, and then magically into the new millennium, we saw the beginning of this word user experience. And you know, the mainstay of, of service design and user experience went from you know, esoteric to ubiquitous. It became mm-hmm. mainstream where the companies that shifted were those that all of a sudden, you know, the rhetoric of, of user experience became everything. And it, you know, it wasn't, how do I make this good enough? It was, how do I make it better? You know, and that comes to your notion of customer delight and winning customers and what it really means to serve. And, you know, it's interesting. We moved into even dev methods of, you know, agile and sprints and user stories these were techniques that were, you know, um, you know, academically described and, and employed, you know, at least I could say back in the 80s where we would do task analyses to understand how one did something and how we might redesign that task, you know, in the system and out of the system to be more performant. And then that same method was applied to how could they do it so it would be more delightful, more fun, more beautiful, more engaging, more social, better. And, and, you know, now you look at, let's take the first decade of the new millennium into the second, and those who win, you know, in everything, with everything as a service, you know, the, the, the shift in how we think about product that we don't need to own, we could just use, that everything should be instantaneously available, the, the humbly, you know, a differentiator 
that has made successful enterprises successful is that focus on experience delivery. And it's just remarkable for me that marketers, and bear with me, long-winded here, you know, as I started to move into more formal marketing roles, were, were focused too much on the promotion end. So they would, you know, create stories of how to sell and not be connected to the stories of what to make mm-hmm. and how to make it. And to me, full marketing begins with that experiential side of if we could make something better, you know, and again, we could design, think, and lie on our backs and imagine a blue ocean versus a red ocean, or we could just nail it within it, the constraints of the market we serve. And then when we tell the story of differentiation, you know, the, the, the provocation of why to buy and convert, it's authentic because it's connected to the thing that we made that we really believe in. And back to your statement about startups and that notion of abundance, startups have that mindset. We sat down together and think we have a thing, a service, a product that will improve people's lives and change the world. And that's what holds them together in that belief. And then as they get more formalized, you know, organizationally, you have, oh, let's bring in the marketer that needs to, you know, have a marketing tech stack to generate leads, you know, for sales. And suddenly they get disconnected where the, you know, the the beginning doesn't touch the end. And I believe strongly that as a CMO, that CMO should own, you know, strategy to to promotion and sales, not, you know, own everything organizationally, but better have a seat at the table and, and be connected to, you know, designing in delight and differentiation and then highlighting it when they support sales and promotion. <laughs> I know that was long-winded. You got me out of my chair. Um, I, I'm just, you know, I get excited about that because I really believe it. Well, and this is also one of those things where, okay, so now you're talking about creating a connected experience and I know one of the things that you've, you've spent some time on is starting to think about this as for companies that have multiple products or multiple divisions, even housing these infrastructures by division, by organization, so that it's more fully connected, that you've got teams that are focused on uh, engaging in these conversations, finding ways that the customers would use and delight in the product, articulating those in the marketplace, getting the salespeople to connect with people that then use those same stories and that same, you know, that same mythology to drive people into a product and then, you know, support them through their life cycle instead of what I think a lot of organizations did, which was everyone plays their role. They're the cog in the machine, but then the cogs lose their place on what the customer's focus is. So all of those things while you were up in your chair and, and, and getting excited about this, I think all start to connect with this idea of instead of just letting people play their roles in the organization, start to think of this more holistically. And what does it take from that earliest stage to make sure that what's being designed, created, um, um, you know, engaged in early on is actually what the customer wants. And then how do you get it in their hands and get them to experience it and let them be the center of this. And then we wrap around them to support that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, it's every employee is a, is an ambassador, an advocate and, and yeah, the, you know, you, you could even go back to this formulaic notion of, you know, is it a branded house or a house of brands? Hmm. And, you know, you look classically like a P&G that, you know, you don't even know you focus on the brands and they have their own brand equity, you know, not Procter and Gamble at the top. And, and how important is that? So when you have a, you know, diverse eclectic portfolio, already you've made a decision that you're, you know, sort of separating um, out entities. And then, you know, classically, and we could spend hours on this hmm. in terms of organizational design, you know, and, and typically back to scarcity, you know, I suggest it's a broad statement that when you have BUs with a P&L orientation, you find that you have more verticalized organizations. Yeah. So you're really managing, you know, by, by P&L um, profitability. And then suddenly you see, and I bet if we did some meta-analytic study, you'd find that philosophically companies that are very oriented towards BU, p 
PNL um, would be less matrixed and transversal. And those mm. that, you know, take a, a broader, we all win together. And, and that starts at the top, you know? Um, so yeah, I couldn't agree more that what's important. And then, you know, who is the purveyor of that in an organization? It's the leadership at large, but, you know, does it come from, you know, HR, um, the, you know, um, CHRO, promoting culture? Does it come from the CMO? What aspect of leadership and organizational design encourages an approach where, you know, ideation and, and next steps become sort of the fabric of the organization and permeates everything everybody does? And, you know, and, and it works in different ways. I mean, you know, you know, with Apple, nobody knows anything. They, they create magic with everybody only touching a pixel of the total screen. Um, yeah. So there's not one way to do this, but it's interesting to at least be aware that, um, you know, the more folks know, the more they could be ambassadors and advocates. And I think, you know, to your good point, when we play that cog in the, in the wheel and all I know is this, it makes it hard to be an advocate for the whole. And, you know, the example that I gave, if the marketer receives something that they didn't know, they might as well be an external agency trying to make a, you know, another clever insurance ad, you know, with a dog or a lizard, um, because it's totally unrelated to the value of the product they're trying to promote. One of the things that I love about C-Suite Radio, and I mean truly love about C-Suite Radio, is our sponsors. That's right. It's the people who put good money to make this show happen. So I'd appreciate it if you'd sit back and listen to one of our sponsors today. Thanks for listening. Always super informative. And thank you, sponsors, for helping to make this show a reality. Now, back to Jerome. Well, and this brings up an interesting point, and this takes us back a, a statement or two as you were talking about the the role of marketing within the organization. And so, you know, bear with me for just a second because I think this will set you up for for something pretty nicely. One of the dynamics has been, and we've seen this shift over time of the role that marketing plays. And you can look back to '90s, 2000s, and certainly to to the modern era. But marketing's had this, this notion, especially with a lot of companies out here, that marketing is about the lead, that marketing is about the, the connection to revenue. And then, yeah, there's all these ancillary pieces. And at times, marketing was just brand, and it was the colors and the logo and how people interacted and what it looked like on a billboard on the 101. But now that it's taken this role as marketing is lead, I think there's some smart marketers out there that are sitting down with their organizations and saying, look... This isn't power grab. This isn't marketing trying to be the center of all and to vault the role of CMO into an, an, you know, an, an unholy place within the organization, but that marketing should play a central role and that marketing equals strategy. You know, our, our mutual friend, Vasu Jakal over at, at FireEye, mm-hmm. you know, she, if you ask her what does brand stand for, her first knee-jerk gut reaction before the word duh is out of the brand, she is like strategy. You know, brand is strategy, and it's the strategy of the organization, not strategy of marketing. So I'd love to hear a little bit from you on the sort of modern view of marketing and the things that you've done to make marketing not just the marketing engine in the organization, not just the the lead gen engine, not the thing that happens at the last mile in concert with sales, but really is about the strategy, the direction, the the fundamental guidance for the the company at large. Yeah, that's a great setup. You know, I, I think um, I wish, you know, the state of the union were healthier than it is. Um, I, I'm not big on social clubs and the like, but I, I participate in different CMO organizations. I'm the chapter president of the Silicon Valley um, CMO club. And, and, you know, with humility, you know, I'd acknowledge that I think at large, CMOs are excited that they've moved out of the, you know, brand is, is color and font hmm. to a sort of MarTech stack where now they have metrics associated with being able to demonstrate, you know, moving from awareness through consideration to decision in, in you know, the lead funnel. 
and, and they're adding real value. And they've gotten more budget and pulled from IT. So by this measure, you know, marketing is more valuable. I don't see that a victory um, because, in fact, it's just using automation, you know, for the very downstream end. So to me, and I know in the spirit that Vasu believes with FireEye as well, that, you know, firstly, everybody understands story. Um, so when you talk about story and narrative, it is strategy. Let me digress. You know, we at Rambus, like most public companies, go through a standard annual cycle where you begin with your strat plan, and then from that you move to AOP or whatever variant, and that would be annual operating plan. So you begin with a view, it might be five years, it might be three years, but you say, this is where I am today, and this is where I want to be. You know, I've done all my TAM, SAM, SOM analyses, I'm looking at my product and competition, competitive landscape, and I believe we can do if we, and that's either, you know, invest, um, it could be internal, it could be, you know, um, inorganic, um, it, it could be areas I need to say, but you have that plan of how you move forward. You know, and then you move into more um, with higher fidelity and a forecast commitment, what you think you're going to do next year as the foundation for the next set of years. You know, the strat plan is not just an Excel exercise. Hmm. It is a narrative. It is a story. And marketers should be good at helping translate a bunch of data points into a coherent argument for, for action and change. So, you know, you could use fancy words to talk about how we sit at the table and are strategic, but if we just turn it into a story that is compelling and add in a human connection of, look at what we can be if we do. I mean, we were sitting in, uh, you know, Monday exec staff and we're in our strat cycle and I've been so consumed, you know, with this divestiture activity and all my time in Europe, I've been calling into a lot of our exec staff meetings and I was actually had the, you know, the luxury, if you will, of being in Silicon Valley and sitting in the, in the room with everybody. And we were still really not speaking to strategy. And I said, you know, we're at a point now where we're going to finish our strat plan doc and we're not going to have the top pillars of what our strategy is. So let me propose five pillars. And it was just that simple exercise of, of documenting, you know, five themes and describing them in a narrative that got everyone around the table, you know, at some level to align, to debate, to engage, and then ultimately to say, this is our top line. So how did that happen? You know, it was just by listening and then responding with something that is a, a framework that we could explain to our constituencies, you know, our employees, our customers, our investors, our board, um, the market at large. And I think this is a, a gift that strategic marketing brings. And don't make it more than it is. Make it that, you know, you're a good listener, you can articulate, you understand your business deeply, but you have a way of explaining things that is understandable, compelling, and provocative. And, and, you know, what happens then is suddenly everybody says, can you be the steward of the strat plan? Because you can tell the story. How does that happen? Because you can. <laughs> well, and, and then the story becomes portable, translatable. It becomes articulated and it's something that can be dispersed out to, you know, I mean, it's, cliche, but all those different audiences, you can start to articulate this to your employees. And now your employees are on board and excited and engaged. Your partners, your investors, your advisors, board members, um, and then the market at large. And and now you've got something that is the, the, you know, sort of rudder for the company in terms of direction and how you articulate that in the marketplace. And it's, it's fantastic that marketing's taking that role and moving, you know, out of the shadows. And I loved your point of view of let's not, let's not over rotate on this either, but marketing can help to articulate that in the marketplace and help to make those connections across all those different groups and audiences. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's how you get that seat at the table, you know, because you've got to increment you know, there was a great um, interview um, with Barney Frank on NPR a while back. Hmm. 
um, talking about his new book, which I've not read and should, but he, he talked about um, interventionists versus incrementalists. And I found it really compelling that, you know, as a senior exec um, coming into a company, you know, you want to be the interventionist, you want to affect change, but you've got to listen before you act. And, you know, as opposed to breaking down what was there, you might be respectful of it in demonstrating incremental change. And he even talked about Martin Luther King, how like the Black Panthers were, you know, called him the man in a pejorative way, that he wasn't really, you know, punching everybody in the face, but he was looking incrementally at how am I going to bring in these constituencies to affect broader change? So, you know, you could sort of come back to Barack Obama and, and, and at a political level of, do you jump in and, and tear everything down or do you increment forward? And he had made that, um, that sort of, you know, analogy or comparison as well. And I think that for marketers, um, it's really important to keep doing good and have, you know, real deliverables that are appreciated. And then you almost, you know, in terms of managing your constituencies, your customers, your clients, you know, you give them something good. And if you think they've been misbehaving, <laughs> you use that as an opportunity to say, if we want more of this, let's do this more next time. And, and, and it's a way of actually changing behavior, changing position, but all through the quality, the undeniable quality of your deliverables, which is not just the thing, but how you wrap the thing, how you describe it, you know, um, the passion that you have around it. Well, and I love this idea of the incrementalist too, because I can, I can tell you my short-term stint CMO friends who are the come in and let's burn this mother down types who want to make radical shifts and changes in the organization and then find themselves on the outs versus coming in, listening, understanding, really engaging in the organization and then helping to be that source for good, that incremental change, the one that comes in based on knowledge, insight, empathy and understanding of the people around them in the organization can help to propel them forward and whatever forward means for those circumstances, but do it based on an understanding of what's happening around them versus here's the playbook or here's the radical approach that I want to bring in here that doesn't really fit the core constituencies of the organization. And to some degree is almost self-serving, if not even narcissistic. Yeah. You know, and it's totally, I think it's your, your point in life as well. I mean, I, you know, again, reflecting on this 57th birthday hmm. um, and how I fit in the world and then having, you know, two kids that I, I, I love dearly. For me, I was so fast. And, and, and I look at, you know, my early years, if you, I mean, it, it, you know, some hyperbolic curve, but I, I'm not on the way down yet, I don't believe. I'm on this like plateau on, on, on top where, you know, top isn't necessarily better. But I think when we're younger, which I'm going to come back to a concern about the Silicon millennial value of everybody is young and fast moving. You know, I think when we are young, we actually miss, you know, being in the moment because we're more focused on what's next than where we are. And we feel that we need to climb fast, not even understanding, you know, in a gamified way, like what's next and would it be better to take another moment mm -hmm. here or to act quickly to get ahead? And I think we don't even ask that question. We just feel so compelled, you know, that faster is better, like growth fallacy, like we spoke to before. And then we, we get to a point where, you know, I've learned, uh, because I'm reactive by nature, that I'm better to not respond to an email that I would react to than respond. Simple, you know, be mindful of. And I think hmm. when you hit a point of, you know, I wouldn't call it maturity because that, that has a, you know, a, a value judgment. But when you, when you come to a point of you know, being seasoned, you start to firstly say, I want to be in this moment. This is good. You know, one thing, and again, we talk dadisms with my 24-year-old who's at this point existentially of I'm running, I'm running and running. And he uses the word regret, which is something that I don't. And I, I work hard to not live in regret because regret is an affect of disappointment and sadness over what you didn't do. 
And I just use the word consequence, where clearly where you are is a function of what you mm-hmm. did. And there are, there are exogenous, extraneous factors as well. But you know, the notion of regret can paralyze you, that I'm saddened by the fact I didn't do and I am now for here, where you know, acknowledging that there's a connection, a consequence of this led to that. And if I don't want that, I'm going to do something different. So the point I make, you know, coming back to sort of youth and moving forward quickly is when I look at Silicon Valley and I love accelerators and being a mentor and, and, and participating on advisory boards of startups, it's great to see this frenetic energy, but they're moving so fast, they're almost in vertigo. And, <laughs> and we need to remember, you know, when we're young, we think our parents didn't know anything. And the older we get, we realize that, you know, as now I'm 57 and my mom's 82, that there's no way that I could have had the experience in my life that she's had, you know, beyond the fact that she lived through World War II and all of that and was in France, but just that she's been on the planet longer. And we've lost that sense of sort of, you know, respect for experience because everything is so virtualized and we can create it and we think we know everything. You know, and that comes back to interventionist. Don't think you know everything. You know, just be willing to listen and feel and make better decisions that aren't instantaneous. Um, and I think, you know, those are really important leadership qualities. And when you get your, you know, Heinrich and Struggles or Spencer Stewart, they could vet more on that personality of how quick are you to be an interventionist and can you actually listen? you know, and be empathic and have a human fabric in your decision processes. Oh, that was good. That was so good. And well, what I, what I loved about that was the uh, inherent wisdom that comes with being seasoned. And then the acknowledgement that even in those sort of vaulted states that you aren't, um, you're not sitting there resting on your laurels, you being the generalized you, not you specifically, mm-hmm. but not being sort of resting on your laurels and saying, well, I'm the seasoned executive here, but even going the other way and acknowledging that you don't know things, you don't have all the answers, you have the capacity to find them and you have the, the insight and then even infrastructure to go in and look for those answers. You, you know, hopefully at, at, at that age have built up a team of advisors Um, formal or informal, you've got a network of people around you, you know how to ask questions within the organization, and you're comfortable going in and asking teams and saying, here's an insight or a piece of information that I don't have clarity on, and I'm looking to you to help me respond, address, um, understand, or get educated in this particular area. And that's a, that in and of itself is a, again, we won't use the word maturity, but that in itself is a skill that is worth its weight in gold and lost in leaders regardless of age throughout organizations where they feel like if I have to ask a question, it's a position of weakness versus a position of strength because of what I'll be able to do once I have that insight. Couldn't agree more. I mean, every, <clears throat> every um, teacher is a student. Every student is a teacher. You know, um, a couple of years back um, with our prior CEO who I came in with, we were in London and I had a guy who leads um, graphics within the, the corporate marketing team. We were doing some branding sessions and, and, and brought the CEO in. And we were at a restaurant bar sitting and the, this um, CEO dabbled, pretty romantic guy, dabbled in different things and he was doing um, paint um, and he, I, I knew that he appreciated art and was dabbling. And in fact, I duped him a bit because this lead of graphics is actually a pretty remarkable fine artist whose career is budding on the outside. And I have three pieces. I love art. I have three of his pieces at, at home and the like. So to demonstrate this point of you know, student and teacher, I said to the um, prior CEO, hey, um, my guy is Jamal, Jamal Diamond. I'll give him a plug. And I said um, to the CEO, hey, why don't you show Jamal some of the things you've been working on? And um, he, you know, gleefully got into his iPhone and went across the table as, you know, I'll set the context as we're having pints in London um, and, and showed a piece that he had just done of his son. And Jamal, you know, so um, 
humbly and lovingly as he is, said, you know, that's fantastic. And he would have left it there. And I said, Jamal, why don't you show, um, I won't name, name names, why don't you show our ex-CEO um, your pieces? And then he, you know, went in and, you know, sheepishly and, and turned it around. And, you know, he's sort of like a Besquet. He's got a, an interesting hmm. uh, modern style that, you know, if you like it, you like it. It's sort of cubism and graffiti and, 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 and beautiful, but, you know, uh, sort of harsh at the same time. And, and, and this guy appreciated art and he showed his art and I just stopped everybody and I said, look, He's the CEO, but you're the artist. We're all good at what we do, and we all contribute. And sorry for being long-winded, but no, you know, that, these are one of these points in times where you're just like you remind yourself. You know, when I was in graduate school, my PhD advisor liked to ride bikes, <laughs> and in you know the classroom in the psych department, you know, clearly I had deference because I was the slave you know, candidate, and and he was my advisor. But when we got on the bike, fuck all. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's a little bit different right now. And, and he would look to me of, you know, help me with the art, you know, of riding, um, not just pedaling. Um, so we all have these things that we're, we're innately good at and passionate about. And I think as well, you know, when you look at folks and we have, you know, sort of an exceptional mutation here in Silicon Valley where there are a lot of folks who are good at a lot of things, um, you know, again, when I was in graduate school, I had, there was a, an article in the, the school newspaper about, um, you know, I've been racing for a long time, a, a big race, um, national race that I had won. And uh, the dean of the department called me in to express concern of, you know, how I could be a dedicated PhD student and be off in other states racing my bike. And I said, actually, you know, let me tell you that I think this doesn't detract from what I'm doing here. It adds to it. And I do believe that. I think that passion is a great thing. And we shouldn't be so myopic on, you know, this is me unilaterally defining who I am. Um, the guys who I ride and race with, you know, know I have a bigger job, but they really don't know. And certainly the folks I work with, you know, are like, he's weird. He rides his bike a lot, but they have no idea. And being able to, to be very separate in these two worlds and, you know, have accomplished things in both, I cherish. Um, so I, I, I really encourage people to stay with things they love, you know, um, because there's transfer in, in being good at anything. It helps you be good at everything. Oh, that's the, that's the perfect place to leave on. So I, I, I think we could... I could talk to you for another hour, another hour and a half. We could make this the longest podcast on the network, um, but we're not going to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to quit while I'm ahead. But Jerome, we, you know, we started off on this journey with, you know, scarcity and abundance and just sort of this generalized theme. And along the way we morphed into uh, the, the role of leader, the role of marketing in an organization, customer centric, um, uh, viewpoints and how that's evolved over the years and how that's transformed companies, how companies think about their position in the marketplace and how they're evolving it. And then ending on this really personal note on, on you and your passion and your energy and having a thing that is yours that you can drive outside of. And you kind of called it out. And, and I, I know we've talked about this privately where you know your team of cyclists don't really understand your business world and your business world doesn't really understand your cycling side. Uh, they know that they're important to you, but you've kept them somewhat separate. But the same passion, energy, enthusiasm, discipline, the same mindset, the same idea of committing and committing to the race or committing to your divestiture, committing to you as a CMO, that commitment comes through not detracted by, but because of your passion for cycling and because of your lust for life and because of your energy and enthusiasm. And all of those things are intertwined and make you who you are. And there's a lack of that, not just in Silicon Valley, but I think of us as people in general to 
always look at this and, well, I'm a great business person. But yes, but you can also have passions and interests and ideas outside of that that help propel you and your business world forward. And so you calling that out at the very end, I think, was so spot on and such a great way to, to end this. Is there anything you want to throw on before we, before we go ahead and close for the day? Yeah, you just have a remarkable way of, of, of capturing and reiterating. I just, just I really, um, I really appreciate you. Yeah. You know, I, I would just say all of these themes come together, you know, as we sort of broached on, on cycling and the theater of racing, you know, we can live in scarcity and, and, you know, let's be mindful of the reality of scarcity when it exists. But if you can get yourself out of that, and move to make things important, have a belief, feel like you're not taking anything away from somebody else, but moving things forward, amazing things happen. And, you know, in half the year, I do 40, 45 races a year, the purity of that theater and what happens at the end when you make it important, when you believe, when you're not beating others, but moving forward, that's how you get on the podium every weekend and ephemeral as that, you know, meaningless success is you bring it into your Monday and you, mm. it, it propels that belief. So there is a, a synergy between, you know, that race theater and, and the more sort of abstract quicksand nature of the work lives we live that, that helps me. That's my purity. So if it's your yoga, you, you and I talked about surfing. Yes. And what it's like for you to be out. And, you know, I, I listen because I, it's the same, um, mm -hmm. you know, the, and it's more with yourself. It's not, you know, your wave or somebody else's, you're not competing, but the beauty of being in your zone, um, you know, it, it, that's what life is about is being in your zone. So I guess I'd end on that and just thank you. Um, really you're awesome. And, and the folks you speak with are, you know, of an awesome caliber. I'm honored to, to be amongst the others. So thanks so much again. Right. Oh, you're, you're absolutely welcome. Well, uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to just ride off of articulate mofo for, for a <laughs> while now. So um, I may, in fact, we may just change the, the podcast <laughs> to that, just, you know, conversations <laughs> with the articulate mofo. And, and I think, I think it might even do better. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thank, thank you for coming on. Thank you for the conversation. Um, I'm just, you know, walking off of this with some, you know, warm wave of, uh, of psychic spiritual energy and feeling really great about it. So uh, just thank you so much. And um, it was a pleasure having you. And we'll see if we can get you back on again. Rock on. Thanks so much. Okay, we'll talk to you. Bye bye. Well, thanks for listening. I really love Jerome's point of view. I just could listen to this guy forever. His ideas on scarcity and abundance and the mindset that is behind that, how to think about business, how to think about the approach for business, the philosophy, the psychology, all of his views are portable, meaning you can take them and direct them into your world on a daily basis, which is what I love about his point of view. It's not just his, it's something that we can ascribe to as well. His views and similar views like his are available on uh, in the book, Beyond Product, which is now available in stores as of May 7th of 2019, so just a few weeks ago. Super excited that that is now available. Pick up your copy today. Thanks again for listening. You'll hear us again next week as we go through our series of CMOs and their thoughts, ideas, and processes on how they run their business. Thanks again. See you next week. You've been listening to the Founders Place podcast, the place where exceptional founders grow. For past episodes, blogs, and more, visit us at foundersplace.co. That's foundersplace.co. And thanks for listening to the Founders Place podcast, the place where exceptional founders grow. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.